Do you want to murder people in the deep future through your criticism of AI? Do you believe that capitalism is the only way to have any forward movement and progress in the human race? Then join us in Gold's Gulch and help fight against the enemies of progress. And welcome to Moderated Content's weekly slightly random and not at all comprehensive news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dueck, and Alex Stamos, head enemy of progress over here. Kicking off this morning, uh, I think in about uh, a couple of hours, Biden is uh, going to sign an executive order on AI that the White House uh, has been rolling out this morning, and there's been a bunch of press releases about this. It's a it's a pretty big deal. It's a sweeping order uh, covering areas from cybersecurity to health, competition, privacy, immigration, microchips, education, housing, copyright, labor. There's a lot uh, in there. And it's been interesting to see the, the White House being so uh, fast and aggressive and moving so quickly on this. Alex, you have been flicking through it today. Uh, what are your impressions? Yeah. So one, it looks like Joe Biden is now the biggest enemy of progress. <laughs> right. <laughs> Overall, I think it's actually a very thoughtful framework here. It goes further than I expected. It will be interesting to see with everything going on with the Supreme Court and administrative law and Chevron deference and such of how much of this stuff will actually be doable by the executive branch without actions by Congress. So you know, I, that's a, an interesting open question. It's a very national security focused, which is what you kind of expect because it came out of people who were attached to National Security Council. Um, I believe Ben Buchanan was one of the drivers of this, generally a professor uh, doing a stint in the White House. Uh, and he's been having a lot of meetings with folks and previewing this and and getting feedback. You know, a couple of things, there is a focus on the national security competitive aspects. There's a focus on making sure that the United States knows about uh, models that are being trained, about the access to large amounts of hardware from cloud providers by foreign governments. They're really just mean China, but they're talking about a broader thing. There's even stuff about microchips and such. But then there's also focus on some reasonable steps that you might want to take to encourage risk management. It's overall a very positive order about the benefits of AI. And so it is not, as you might expect, a screed against AI. It is not saying that the the world is ending. It's all about real practical risk. So none of this is about the kind of crazy existential risks, uh, Skynet theories that uh, have been promulgated by some people. All of the things they're talking about are are real things. And so, you know, I, I, I've got to spend some more time uh, going through uh, the draft I have. It's like 111 pages, and it is pretty extensive. But overall, I think it's very positive. I also think it's going to... It, They've also kicked the ball over to Congress because there's a bunch of things in here. Like they're, they're saying that the Patent and Trademark Office should make some rules and such. But clearly, you know, we're going to have to have laws passed to change like intellectual property treatment and such. Yeah, right. I, I think that's totally right. You know, you know, the the two things that you opened with, like the fact that, you know, there's going to be limits on what the executive can achieve without legislative action. And that may be even further curved back by what the Supreme Court's doing now. And also that a lot of the focus is on national security. I mean, those two things are related, right? Like the reason why a lot of the focus is on national security is that's where executive power is at its uh, at its highest. And so, yeah, I think, you, I think you're right. A lot of it's going to be the devil will be in the details and, and how uh, manage, they manage to deliver on this. A lot of the concerns are like urging Congress uh, to pass privacy legislation and, and bring that forward. And then, you know, a lot of it is like leading from the front, but it's unclear how much that will change things. So like I, you know, noticed that there's, uh, you know, the order directs the Department of Commerce to develop guidance for content authentication and watermarking to clearly label AI 
AI-generated content and instructs federal agencies to use those tools uh, to make it easy for Americans to know when uh, communications are coming from the government and when those communications are, are authentic. And the idea there is to set an example for you know the private sector and other governments and things like that. And that's that's great, but there's going to be obviously real limits. Like that's a very different proposition from you know requiring everyone to use or authentication or watermarked content, which of course is well beyond uh, the power here and would run into all sorts of First Amendment problems and things like that. So it's it's walking that line between the limits of authority and, and what's what's able to be done here. Yeah, I think the part of it that is the the weakest, and I think partially just limited about executive authority, is the labor part, which he's a Democratic president. As of, I think, today, you, you have uh, the strikes ending in Detroit, right? But this is to the backdrop of labor unrest across the entire country and Biden being attacked from the left. And so they had to say something, but it's very weak of like, uh, Department of Labor should do a report on the labor market effects of AI. I, I think it's going to be bad. It's good for people who are really good at linear algebra uh, and who have PhDs in AI. It's going to be bad for people who have white color jobs that have resisted automation. You know, I, I, was, I spoke at a conference a couple months ago of, uh, I was being held by the Westlaw people, by Thomson Reuters, and it was all general counsels. And I watched the CEO of Westlaw give this demo of their version of Copilot, right? So it's built into Microsoft Word, but it's a branded both, it uses OpenAI core technology, and it's co-branded Microsoft and Thomson Reuters and Westlaw. And he just like typed is in his live demo, I would like a asset purchase agreement under the laws of the state of Utah. And it just blew out a 10 page agreement and said, oh, now add a 30 day, you know, negotiation period, take out the non-compete, do this, do that. And it, it edited in real time. And unlike these other situations where lawyers have gotten trouble for using GPT to write stuff, you could mouse over each of the paragraphs and it would tell you, this is based upon, you know, this part of the Unified Commercial Code. And this is based upon this, you know, appellate court uh, and this and that and this and that, because it's trained on the hundreds of years of stuff that they've been recording. And the general counsels lost their minds, right? Like right. it was like a Taylor Swift concert uh, for these GCs. <laughs> because you could see them just racking up in their head how many of their outside counsel they pay 600 bucks an hour to do basic doc review and basic doc drafting and such. But also like the thing that immediately went to my mind is, man, should my kids not go to law school? Because like the entire model of training young lawyers in big law based upon document review for litigation, based upon looking through these kinds of contracts, drafting these contracts and stuff, that's going to all go away. It's all going to be AI. And the partners on top are going to do great because they can still charge 2000 bucks an hour for their human knowledge of like how the human beings are going to act. But then they don't need to have an associate draw something up if they can just tell Copilot, I want this. And so... There's going to be huge labor market impacts on this, and it's going to hit white collar laborers who, you know, politically mo uh, motivated rich people who have not been affected by globalization and who have benefited from globalization and the automation away of blue collar labor and the downstream societal effects of that are yet to be seen. So I think actually it's a really good, it's a really good document. I think I, I commend the White House team that put this EO together, but there's just so much more we have to do. I, I also like it because it is a stake in the ground of the United States is maybe saying we finally woke up to like, let's not have Europe, you know, be the sole regulator of American companies, right? That like, we're going to have a pro, you know, this is very pro company. It's very pro tech strategy that also, reasonably sees the downside risk. Now, some people would say that the, only an enemy of progress would like this EO, but I, I don't think that would be the right, the, the argument I would make against that is it is much better to have the US government, which is democratically accountable to its own citizens, regulate American companies than to have Europe do it.
Yeah. Although, you know, hearing uh, you just tell that story, Alex has like radicalized me into a real enemy of progress. We need to we need to put the kibosh on this uh, on this uh, right. technology straight away because it is coming for my job. Yeah. No, I mean, it's 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 always it was always clear. You know, there were all these stories when uh, ChatGPT was first let loose that there were that, you know, it was hallucinating cases and lawyers were relying on it. And it was always pretty clear that that was a pretty temporary problem, um, that this is a kind of thing that you can just have the models check against like actual databases of, of cases and, and authorities. And so, you know, I'm not at all surprised to hear that these these demonstrations are, are happening. And it's absolutely something that law schools are going to have to be thinking about, about how do we educate students in this world where being a lawyer is going to be a completely different proposition. I always thought that, you know, the, the stressful part of tenure would be getting it, but it turns out it's uh, getting it before um, they, you know, get rid of all of the, the law professors in the world because uh, they are totally replaceable. So, Oh, you still need law professors. It's just you're going to have a bunch of robots uh, in the audience <laughs> right. learning. You're going to have to be trained training a variety of different large language models. Well, at least uh, then they'll young, actually young be paying lawyers. attention to me. Um, so, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. The robot lawyers don't browse Instagram That's the right. entire time because they're, because they're addicted. That's right. Uh, we, that is an excellent plan that we will come back to uh, later in the, uh, in the episode. But for now, content moderation in the stack and the ongoing uh, stories and, and things that we've been covering uh, on, this, on this show about the war in Israel and Gaza. And last week, we talked about how Telegram was the home of a lot of Hamas content. Alex, you were talking about how that was where you were spending a bunch of time researching because that is a place where uh, Hamas is you know, uh, spreading a lot of its content explicitly uh, because of its unabashed and pretty absolutist lack of content moderation policies. Well, this week, uh, Telegram experienced the pressure from a lever that we have talked about on this podcast many times, uh, which is app stores. And the platform actually blocked access to the official channel of Hamas and the military wing of Hamas for Android users only. Um, and it said in a bunch of, uh, to a bunch of stories, a bunch of reporters that this was because of Google's app store guidelines and the pressure that the Google Play Store was putting on it to do content moderation. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this. This is an unexplored and un, um, realized lever of content moderation, where if it's not happening at the app level, we have seen app stores getting involved. Uh, but it runs into all of these sorts of problems about the lack of transparency. Like it's not clear exactly what was causing, like, why is it these channels and not other channels? What's happening with Apple? All of these sorts of things where there's not a lot of transparency into what's going on here. But, you know, given that you're spending time on the app, Alex, I'm, I'm wondering what you're seeing and, and whether this surprised you. It was interesting. It is interesting that it first for a number of reasons. One, that Google's ahead of Apple here, right? So we generally have always thought that the more aggressive company about using App Store rules was Apple, but it turned out to be Google to be more aggressive here. Um, it looks like the channels are generally channels that are official channels of sanctioned entities, right? So it is under effectively the like material support to terrorism. And to clarify, it is for Android users where it's the Android app installed from the Google App Store not if it's sideloaded or come from a different app store. And so one of the things Telegram's done here is they've clearly instrumented their app to be able to inspect itself and to report up to the server side, I am signed by in the way that comes down from the app store or I am signed for sideloading and such. And this is actually a big deal in this situation because a huge amount of Android phones in the developing world where you have people who are supporting Hamas and you know taking this credit and, and actually people in Gaza and such are going to be using non-App Store, non-Google Play phones, right? Like a, a huge chunk of Android devices out there do not have Google's software. Um, I had to deal with this at Facebook even years ago. This was true. Um, it creates all these interesting challenges because you sometimes have like these $50 phones, which is like incredible that you have like this Chinese OEM that can make a phone affordable to somebody who only makes, you know, a couple hundred 
or dollars a year, and that's great for them, but it's usually like four versions of Android passed. It never gets patched. It creates all these interesting security problems. And so as a as an app vendor, one thing you have to do, like one of the things we did at Facebook, we had to ship our own TLS code and stuff uh, because you could not trust the cryptographic code that was on those devices, also because sometimes it's backdoored by the local uh, government. In any case, Telegram's obviously thought through a bunch of this stuff, and so the number of people who are going to be affected this, I think is actually quite small. It's, it's mostly going to be, well, it affects me because my burner phone that I use to be on Telegram is a real pixel. So I now have to go buy a, a, a crappy or I have to jailbreak it uh, and, and do some things and install a different Telegram so that I can do my work. But the number of people who like actually are Hamas supporters or communicating on Telegram in operational support of Hezbollah or Hamas is going to be minimal. Like almost all those people are going to be sideloaded. One thing's like I, I heard this interesting story from like user research back in the days, like in Egypt. One of the common things people do is they take their Android phone to like a booth of like the phone guy and he will plug it in and he'll update your Android and then he'll update all your apps. So he keeps like on his local PC, he keeps a collection of like WhatsApp and Telegram and all of like the popular apps and that's the only way it gets updated. And so this was actually an interesting challenge for a number of platforms and WhatsApp, if your app is more than 30 days old, I believe, will basically message you and say you can't participate anymore because it creates all these interesting security problems. Yeah. Oh, that's super fascinating. I didn't know any of that background. And it also just underlines again, though, like the lack of transparency uh, in this in this situation, because we actually have no idea how many users and things like that are being affected by this decision. Uh, it's all completely right. opaque. Big, it'll be a much bigger deal if Apple does it, because you it is much, 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 much harder to jailbreak an Apple device. It is extremely rare for people to run non-official. In fact, what I would expect would happen is if Telegram follows for their Apple versions, they'll make no distinction of jailbroken or not, because it, it won't make sense for them. Yeah. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see, like often we have seen in the past that the app stores move uh, in in lockstep and it's pretty rare for them to be in a situation where they come to different decisions or certainly most of the high profile cases that we've talked about in the past have all been uh, everyone taking shelter from everyone else uh, and making the same kinds of calls. But so far, no, no news uh, from Apple, even though this has been uh, a couple of days now. Okay, moving on to, uh, we haven't done this in a while, actually, but let's go to our uh, Twitter corner. <laughs> All right, it's nice to be back here, I guess, sort of. So the reason why we're reprising the uh, the sad trombone today is that this week marked one year since Elon Musk uh, flipped the bird and took took ownership of Twitter, or then Twitter, now X. Um, and there- Does it feel like a year to you, Evelyn, oh. or does it feel like a lifetime? <laughs> I feel like we've lived... This is like the 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 Star Trek Next Generation episode where Picard lives an entire lifetime uh, while he's unconscious. That's what I feel like's happened since Elon Musk took over. Like I'm awakening, and but I can still play flute and I, you know, miss my family uh, that I, I lived with in my imaginary world. Yes. It, it feels like a long time ago, a portal to another world uh, back when uh, back in the good old days where there were blue birds flying in the sky and uh, and, and tweeting around. Um, and here we sit one year later, haggard and run down. Um it was a big week for us. I mean, big week for the world, obviously, with, with Twitter being uh, acquired. But it was also a big week for us because it was our first uh, emergency edition of this very young podcast that we had just started. And so I went back and I read the transcript of that uh, that episode uh, this, this week. Um, and actually, I got to say, Alex, uh, it feels like it held up pretty well. We talked about how uh, Musk, you know, had, was coming in and saying that uh, he was, you know, going to, you know, liberate this app and, and make it uh, a free speech absolutist, but that inevitably he was going to run into regulatory problems uh, and that he was going to find out, like everyone else, uh, that that he's not above the law. And that is exactly what we've seen. We've seen the FTC take action. We've seen uh, the DSA and, and Europe taking action. We've seen all sorts of regulatory problems, not to mention 
overseas, which we'll, we'll come to uh, as well. You uh, predicted in, in a statement that I think has held up especially well, uh, they have a real fear that the contracts go away and then eventually the APIs will go away. Uh, and of course, that is a has been a massive change in the past year and has been the shutdown of the Twitter API and therefore the lack of visibility into what's going on to Twitter. And then we both predicted that this was going to be very good news for Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and I think, you know, we were mainly thinking uh, about the reputational uh, cover that, that Musk was going to give him by the fact that he was going to be the person in the headlines uh, all the time with, you know, all the content moderation controversies uh, were all going to be Musk controversies uh, from from then on. And it has been uh, even, even better than possibly we could have imagined, of course, because now we sit here uh, one year later and uh, Threads is doing extremely well as a competitor to Twitter, which didn't even exist back then. So some good predictions. Uh, and, mo- right. <laughs> and, and nobody complains about like, even if uh, Mark Zuckerberg makes a mistake, people say things like, wow, well, this is hard. It's unbelievable. Like, things have completely and totally changed. Mark Zuckerberg, every morning, must wake up and pray to a little shrine of Elon, right? right. Maybe it's like the solar panel off of a re-entered Starlink satellite or something. When he lights incense and says, please, God, let Elon Musk continue to be the CEO of Twitter for as long as I'm alive, because it has made my life so much easier. Exactly. The, the, the attitude is pretty much, oh, thank you, Mark, so much for trying to spin up this app for us so that we have a new place to recongregate. I know it's really yeah. hard work. And if you have time, you know, no hurry. But if you do have a little bit of time, if you could introduce this feature, it would make it so much better for me. We'd really appreciate it, um, which is a, a very big tone shift. So It's like he's become the CEO of YouTube. <laughs> right. That's the feeling he gets every day. Yeah. Exactly. This is what Susan Wojcicki felt like. It is so much better this way. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, what's your big takeaway from 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 the year? Yeah, I, I'm not sh- shocked that our that we were right. It would have been nicer for the world if we were incorrect. But I, I think it has reinforced something that we've talked about multiple times, which is when you invest your time in a social network, one of the things that you're buying effectively with your time is you're buying a entry into a community, and the community is multiple things. It is the people who is on, who are on that is people who are not on that, right? So community is both a positive and negative thing. And Musk has gone rid of that second part. He decided, oh, we're not going to eliminate people from this community. And that will, you could block them if you want. Now he talked about getting rid of blocking. He finally got rid of that. I think he probably figured out how many people he was blocking himself and a bunch of his supporters. But, you know, his theory is like, you can let everybody in and, and you can block later, and that has like a real effect on the community, right? Like when you when you let all of these known abusive accounts back in, when you loosen up hate speech rules, and especially when you get rid of the teams that look at organized manipulation. That is the other thing that is being massively yes, there's there's the the actual white supremacists and such that are on the platform. But there's also a ton of, if you look at like what's going on right now with Israel and Hamas, there's a ton of blue check mark accounts that are clearly being driven by politically motivated actors to spread disinformation. And that is because they got rid of, of the entire team whose job, they haven't really gotten rid of the rules against that kind of stuff, but they got rid of the team whose job it was to enforce against it. And through all the blue check mark decisions they've made, they've made it incredibly easy. And, and so by bringing back the known abusers and then also effectively, if not officially, but effectively opening the door for troll farms to come back, the quality of the community has gone through into the toilet and it has become a very bad place to be. I remarked on this of like, I made like a, a stupid little joke 
on threads about looking out over the uh, Atlantic Ocean, a reference to Cal and Stanford being part of the Atlantic Coast Conference. If I did that on X, I'd literally get death threats, right? Of like, you know, people would say, and, and a bunch of it would be automated, right? Because anything I post gets a bunch of automated responses. I was tagged actually in uh, from a congressman's post on X. And within seconds, all of a sudden he's getting the same crap. It's just, it, there's no way it's humans, right? It's, it's got to be automated. I see it all just because I was tagged in this, this this tweet. And then on threads, I just get like really earnest people correcting me and telling me that's the Pacific Ocean. Like, oh, I didn't realize that when I was last doing a, a, the Farallons, the SF to Farallons race. But yes, thank you. <laughs> right. But that's fine. Like I'll deal with like super earnest middle-aged boomers who think that it's their job to make sure that everybody gets the Atlantic and Pacific corrected. Um, that's a community I don't mind being part of because I can just block those people or ignore them. Whereas, you know, X has moved beyond the part of where curating your own experience there is possible at all. Yeah. No, never going out on a boat again with you, Alex, uh, captaining, if it's uh, if your ability to read a map is uh, is that poor. That's uh, that's pretty shocking there. Uh, <laughs> so even my uh, terrible uh, US geography, I, I knew that one. So um, yes. Yeah. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Like, So all of the reporting this week, you know, in all of the major outlets that had stories about the one year anniversary of, uh, of Musk acquiring Twitter talked about how the declining quality and also usage. You know, the the Washington Post had uh, had statistics that people actively tweeting has dropped by more than thirty percent over the past year, and that it's you know it's hemorrhaging advertisers and revenue. And all of that's down. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a year's time, whether it just, you know, continues its slow, steady decline as the as the platform basically crumbles. I mean, it didn't, you know, there were these moments over the past year where people uh, expected to, it to break completely overnight as a result of like laying off so much of the engineering team. And of course, that never happened. But it'll be interesting to see whether Musk tries and reverse this trend. I mean, there was, he did tweet this week that uh, any posts that are corrected by community notes will become ineligible for the revenue share because uh, it turns out out. The idea is to maximize the incentive for accuracy over sensationalism. So it seems like uh, he had this like light bulb moment where he might have realized that the incentives on his platform were not the incentives for accuracy over sensationalism. I mean, who knew? But you know, he's so close, yeah. so close. He he always gets really close to the truth, and then all of a sudden he's tweeting a picture of Iran surrounded by U.S. bases that's like effectively just straight up Russian propaganda and completely untrue, right? Yeah, it's it's just kind of amazing. Yeah, he'll, he'll he'll say something like that, and you're like, oh my god, he's about to get it, and then he's like, and then I, yo. Russia Today told me this thing, and here here I am retweeting it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, listeners wouldn't have seen, but I literally put my head in my hands over over that one. I mean, this guy still manages uh, to to tweet the most like reprehensible, terrible things, and uh, you know, it, one of the pleasures of this year has been uh, his increasing irrelevance as the platform has become, you know, as the story of the platform has basically become monotonous. So oh, there he is doing something stupid, uh, stupid again, and and you know, we we don't need to keep covering it, but it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year as well. Okay, moving on to a legal corner. Thank you. So Colorado and California led a joint lawsuit uh, that was filed this week by 33 states in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, uh, alleging that Meta violated consumer protection laws by luring in youth with addictive features uh, and giving misleading statements about whether those features were manipulative, um, whether the platforms were safe, and also um, alleged that Meta had breached its obligations under the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA, by unlawfully uh, 
collecting the personal data of its youngest youngest users without its parents' permission. Now, this is a 233-page complaint. Uh, it is also extremely heavily redacted, so it's uh, you know it's it's hard to to sort of get a sense of exactly how much evidence uh, the attorney generals have in this case. So, for example, you know there's this there's this um, uh, statement in the in the complaint that these harms are pervasive and often measurable, which is like the one of the key questions uh, in this lawsuit is are the harms measurable and are they pervasive? And then there's like six pages of redactions straight after that statement, which would be presumably where the evidence is laid out establishing that claim. And so it's it's hard to get a sense of exactly how strong this case is. And maybe litigating this issue is a good way to air some of these issues that have been the, the topic of a lot of public debate. But it, it's just fair to say that this would be a pretty radically different First Amendment landscape uh, for, for this to succeed and also like a pretty radical finding given you know the current state of public research, which doesn't support these extremely blanket findings about the effect of these features on youth. And the features that they're talking about are things that are pretty standard across a lot of different kinds of media and a lot of different kinds of platforms. So it's things like algorithmic feed, uh, push notifications, ephemeral content, which uh, enlivens in users a sense of FOMO and things like that. So it's hard to get a sense of how strong it is, but you know this is the kind of lawsuit that does reek of more sort of political posturing and trying to get you know all of the headlines that it did in fact get this week rather than really being... Um, uh, fully driven by the evidence. Yeah, so I, I can't really speak as to the likelihood of its winning. First off, a legal question, why is it so heavily redacted? Like, what what is driving the redactions, and, and will that be lifted during this process for, for the public? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, you would think so. I actually had exactly the same question, and I'm not sure the answer, because it's there. it seems so heavily redacted that it's redact- redacting things that seem to be public statements, in fact, in, in certain cases. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this feels to be more redacted than like the Trump indictment that is referencing war plans with Iran, right? Like of actual classified documents. These like leaked docs are not classified, right? right? Like it just seemed a little odd. Yeah. No, I don't actually have the answer to you. It's, good. it's a great question. Okay. So I, I can't speak as to what's going to happen here. I mean, clearly a lot of people are addicted to their phones, right? What's that responsibility for like overall society of building these things versus individual products and how much do they know and, and such is, I mean, I think it's gonna be a really tough legal fight. I think in this case, there's two things that are problematic for me. The first is when, if this is just about addiction overall, it'd be one thing, but specifically about children. And whenever you talk about children and safety online, the biggest problem that companies always face is they do not have verified identity of individuals. And we've dealt with this over and over again in dealing with the laws, dealing with pressure put on them, a FOSTA-SESTA and such, is COPA especially, is that companies have a really crappy system where they say, are you, you know, how old are you? And you say, I'm 117 years old. And like, wow, you look fantastic for 117. Welcome to Instagram, right? Uh, And uh, yes, everybody knows it's a joke, but the problem is that the alternatives are pretty bad and often very authoritarian, right? Like if you think through the actual alternatives for really knowing people's age up to a high level of accuracy that you would be willing that if you're facing this level of legal risk to accept, you eventually end up like in the, what the, the British attempted, which is that you have to like show ID cards to like uh, at a local store to get a card that allows you to log in, which all fell apart or the Chinese model, which is like every internet connection and every SIM card is tied to a government ID. And I don't think that's very compatible with the ideals of the the US or the EU. And honestly, and uh, most of the Western world, people would reject that kind of idea and that level of verification of age. So whenever you talk about any of this kind of stuff and you talk about fixing it, the problem is when you ask people, they've never really thought through what do you have to do to have the level of age verification necessary to truly, truly treat children differently, right? And then the second 
on all of this stuff is this is clearly driven. Why are they suing Meta, right? So like, if you're talking about young people as somebody with two teens and a preteen in the house, Meta's products are, I'm not going to say irrelevant, but are not the most important for them, right? Out of all of the kinds of electronic media they consume, the one that worries me the most right now is TikTok, right? And the reason why is that there's a bunch of leaked documents from Facebook that talk about things like addiction. Those documents exist because after the era when I was there and we found some bad stuff and people started really caring about what Facebook calls integrity, but everybody else calls trust and safety. The company hired hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of quantitative social science researchers, of people who are data analysts, of people who are experts in different kinds of abuses, and created a huge corpus of studying the effect of the platform and how it could be better. People can now see this. This is kind of very quietly announced, but your old colleagues at Harvard, at the Shorn Center have finally released redacted versions, uh, but lightly redacted versions of the leaked uh, Facebook documents at fbarchive.org. You have to register with an account. It's not a big deal. Um, but I strongly recommend anybody who listens to this podcast who's interested in this area to go look through the actual documents themselves. And what you will find is it tells a very different story in to total than what you read in the media about those documents. Because what it shows is you got hundreds of people who care about this stuff, who are trying to do their best. And the real effect of both that leak and maybe this lawsuit is that no company will ever again do this kind of research, right? Like already Facebook's laid off a bunch of those people uh, in these last layoffs. They use the kind of economic situation as an excuse, but clearly also they wanted to clear the decks of anybody who was writing stuff that could be dangerous in these lawsuits. And I just don't see that as a positive way forward here because realistically doing this kind of like really good research on the effects of social media and how do you design it in ways that are better for children and such is almost impossible without the platforms. And if Congress is not going to act on PADA or any kind of law that is going to require transparency and require cooperation, then if the only kind of regulation we have is through lawsuits like this, it's going to end up in a negative place. And I think we're going to look back at this period and actually say things got worse because TikTok and every company comes after TikTok will never, ever, 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 ever hire somebody who's ever going to write down in an internal memo, our product is addictive. Yeah. They'll never do it. Right. And so that doesn't make the world better. It makes it worse. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, you know, a couple of separate questions here about like the, you know, the strength of the lawsuit, but then also, the, you know, the idea of like, is this lawsuit going to make the world better and actually like achieve its aims? And of course, the obvious response, like you said, is well, if you're concerned about youth and social media or addictive properties, why are you suing Meta rather than the other sites, which, like you said, TikTok, but I am not going to let YouTube off the uh, off the hook here uh, as another place that has a lot of screen time for users. You've never talked about YouTube. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's just. Uh, no, but YouTube, which is the number one screen time, right? Like it is the right. number one for overall, and it probably is for teenagers. I'm not sure if TikTok or YouTube, I, we'll have to try to find of like hours spent, uh, which one of those is bigger. It's definitely not a meta product. Right. And, and not to mention definitely like, not VR, right? Like <laughs> not yet, but, uh, but let's see. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Oculus oh, yeah, no, right. 3 coming out. No problem. <laughs> They're on it. But video games more generally are also a massive place uh, where youth spend a lot of time and uh, are incentivized to spend a lot of time. But of course, the reason why they are going after Meta or, you know, why are they starting with Meta? I mean, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with lawsuits proceeding one case at a time. And, and uh, if, if Meta is like, again, this is goes to what's behind the redaction actions and the kind of evidence that the, the AGs might have in this particular case that might make this a stronger case than, than other cases. But I think you're absolutely right that like more broadly, what we need is evidence 
evidence that doesn't depend on certain particular leaks or, you know, just it, we happen to be going after this company because we have the evidence in this case rather than, you know, actually going after solving the problems where they arise most acutely. And that's going to require, you know, legislative action. I think you're right. It is, is the most important thing in terms of getting transparency so that these things can actually be researched in a more comprehensive, consistent way rather than this kind of ad hoc approach. Right. If, if you're going to outlaw some kind of growth hacking stuff, I think that's great. One, it should be based upon real evidence that doing that is bad for people. And two, it should be fairly applied. Just saying this one company we don't like, so therefore we're going to destroy all of their economic prospects among young people while we ignore these other ones for four or five years and we'll get around to it eventually is a pretty dumb way of if your goal is actually making things better and not trying to just get reelected. That's the other thing here that you always see is like it's both Democrats and Republicans. And it comes right back to, especially for the Dems who are part of this, it's like the Republicans who are suing them with you don't really care about your issues. They are angry because these companies did what you wanted and actually crack, finally cracked down on disinformation around elections, right? And that is why Republicans are angry and they're looking at any way to publish it. And so like the, the Democrats who are looking to make it to their Senate run because they, they sued Meta and they're doing so with uh, folks from Texas need to realize that they are being used for a political project that is meant to punish these companies because the companies did the right thing on January 6th. So this is going to take a long time. Don't expect any answers uh, anytime soon. And I'm sure we will keep checking in uh, on this as it, as it proceeds. But I think we are in for, for many years of stories probably about this lawsuit as it proceeds, um, by, by which case I'm sure that, that, that Meta will still be the most important platform for youth uh, as, it, as it is today. Okay, speaking of online safety, uh, terrible news this week, which is that the Online Safety Act uh, has finally become law in the UK, which is terrible because it means I can't continue to completely ignore it anymore and will probably have to try and get my head around uh, this 255-page piece of legislation. This was a piece of legislation that's been in the works for years now, and it was something that I tried to follow quite diligently when it was first proposed because the UK is an extremely important jurisdiction and it's uh, an interesting piece of legislation. And then it was just like it was getting changed so many times and it was passing uh, and, and and so many different amendments and, and all these different, and then it was like, it seemed to have momentum and then it didn't have momentum. And so at some point I kind of just checked out and was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I will only check back in once this thing actually becomes real. Well, sadly, that day has arrived. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that we should all uh, get our heads around and start paying attention to uh, more seriously because it's a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation uh, in a very important pe- uh, jurisdiction. And it's going to have some pretty um, marked effects, I think, even around transparency, but also around operating models for these platforms. And so it'll be one to watch. Yeah. And earlier versions of it had some really problematic stuff around encryption, around age verification. So it'll be interesting to see. I'll just throw out a call here. If you are a listener and you're a UK legal expert, if you're a law professor in the UK, if you're a solicitor, if you're somebody who studies this kind of stuff, we'd love to have you on as a guest to talk about it because I just, it's got like using color and, you know, it's just, it's very hard for me to read. So it would be great if we could find an expert. <laughs> oh, my eyes. Yeah. yeah. It <laughs> makes me feel like home. It's, it's great. Right. Right. If, if somebody wants to explain to the colonists how the mothership was able to uh, actually solve this problem, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Sounds good. Yes. Second that call. Okay. And some further reading for people this week, Alex, uh, in the past week or so, you published with a, a co-author, a guide to running your own Mastodon in instance and the trust and safety issues that arise. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So all the credit here goes to Sarah Shaw, one of our fantastic master's international policy students at Stanford. Um, And she did a great job kind of doing an overview of the different areas of critical trust and safety issues these days, CSAM, terrorism and the like, and then talking about how do these things, uh, how are they affected by Mastodon? So some of it is 
built upon the work that David Teal and others have already done around child safety. Um, and she kind of brought in the lens and I think set the stage for the fact that there are great things about distributed social media. But one of the downsides is that some of these problems that are much easier to deal with when you have a big centralized for-profit company are going to become challenges and are legal challenges, right? So you have, you know, around 18, uh, 2258A, there are requirements for providers of Mastodon services uh, around child safety. From our earlier work, we think that pretty much every major Mastodon instance is in violation of US law right now because they're hosting CSAM, they're taking it down. And when they take it down, they do not res- they do not report it to the cyber tip line. And there's no de minimis standard for what is an electronic service provider anywhere in the law. So she talks a little bit about that, talks about like the material support to terrorism laws and how the complexity that's facing there. So not a lot of solutions, uh, but it's a great, like if you're a Mastodon server admin, I, I do recommend reading it. It's io.stanford.edu. It's one of the top things. Excellent. Okay. And then uh, we haven't had a a sports update in a few weeks now because it hasn't felt totally appropriate. But I had, the New York Times had some reporting this week that even as uh, Twitter usage is declining, uh, sports Twitter is surviving um, because uh, it it just hasn't made the jump yet to any of the other platforms. And so I think our sports update is actually a public service uh, because we are now going to provide a place for people who who are hungering after their sports updates to get that hit without having to go to the to the Twitter platform. So over to you, Alex. <laughs> right. So big college football weekend, fascinating weekend. So I was at the Cal game, Cal versus USC, perhaps the last time USC plays in California Memorial Stadium for years because uh, next year, Cal and USC, even though they've played every year except for World Wars uh, from 1912 when they played rugby, not football together. Uh, unfortunately, the, the two universities, and I believe they weren't the Trojans back then, they were the USC Methodists, which is a little less intimidating than the Trojans. Um, I do like to point out to people as a Greek that the Trojans lost the Trojan War. This is, in fact, a question on my <laughs> final for, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little hint, any of our students who are listening, it is the Greeks who won the Trojan War, not the Trojans. But unfortunately, the Trojans did win on Saturday after Cal led almost the entire game, but had these crazy turnovers, and they won by one point in one of the craziest college football games I've ever seen in my life. And it was also possibly almost an upset Stanford in Washington. Washington, which is ranked, was ranked number five coming in the weekend. Stanford got very close. They, I don't think they led, they like tied it a couple points. They got very close. Uh, and Stanford and Cal have both had very hard years. It would have been really cool to see them have revenge on these two teams that are going into the Big Ten and have relegated Stanford and Cal to the Atlantic Coast Conference. Like I said, totally the coast that I see when you look out over the rim of California Memorial Stadium, that beautiful Atlantic Ocean. It would have been nice, but they didn't happen. And so because those victories did not happen, I have to uh, be happy about the Sacramento Kings defeated the Los Angeles Lakers. So professional basketball season has started. Uh, so we will be swinging our sports away from college football towards basketball. This is it. This is the year for Sacramento Kings, who finally broke their streak last year of not going to the playoffs. Young team. They brought back all the key folks. We beat the Lakers. I hate the Lakers. You know, Staples Center fell into a, a crevasse during the next big earthquake in Los Angeles. That would be fine with me. And so the defeat of the hated Lakers uh, was a big victory. And I, I expect a lot out of the beautiful Sacramento Kings this year. Excellent. Okay. Something to look forward to. Uh, although I'm still hung up on the fact that these teams used to play rugby and then switched, which means they voluntarily chose not to keep playing rugby and to play this other sport. Oh, well, they uh, still instead. play rugby. Just- it's just that they just don't call it like the, it's just not the thing that gets the attention. In fact, uh, Cal has one of the best rugby teams in the world. It, they're like huh. NCAA champions over and over again. Like you look at the rugby team and they, they recruit like Aussies and, and Kiwis and guys from Tonga. It's like this, it's crazy. They go out and they pull people from all these big rugby 
countries and, and bring them to uh, Berkeley, which is crazy. But they still play. It's just not doesn't get uh, quite the it's not on TV as much. There you go. Great piece of trivia. All right. And so with that, this has been your moderated content weekly update. The show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And show notes are available at law.samford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst at the Stanford Internet Observatory. And it is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks to Justin Fu and Rob Huffman. Talk to you next week.